0: evening. It's good to be with you again this evening. I confess I do not have any children's classes planned for this week, so I'm sorry children. Lord willing, I will plan to speak primarily to the youth on Saturday night. That doesn't mean the rest of you shouldn't come. I'm sure there'll be something for you as well, but uh, Lord willing, if He continues to direct this way, I'll be speaking to the youth on Saturday evening. And as I was looking over this, my notes for the message tonight, I realized that a good speaker will begin with an introduction just to get your minds, to pique your interest in the subject coming. And I have no introduction tonight. I just start with, just start. So, uh... That's my introduction. There are many people who say they have committed their life to Christ, and that's good. But I would prefer to use the word surrendered rather than committed. And you may say, well, that's just a technicality of words. We mean the same thing do doesn't mean the same thing when you commit when i commit myself to something i am in control i can change or i can amend that commitment however i want when things get difficult i can back up i can change it when i commit when i surrender i have nothing left you are giving up you have nothing left you cannot change that you see the difference That's what we need to do when we come to Christ. We need to surrender rather than commit. With commitment, we still have control. And I was was thinking, looking for an example of true surrender, a good example of surrender. My mind immediately went to Jesus in Luke. These are familiar verses. You don't need to turn to it, but but listen as I read these. It's a a beautiful example of of Jesus' surrendering. It's in Luke 22. And he and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Thinking of commitment versus surrender, if, and I'm putting myself in the, in the shoes as best as I can here, in Jesus' shoes, I, we can't do that. We can't even imagine what He was going through here. Physically, we can get close to imagining, but the spiritual weight and the emotional, everything that goes with that, there's no way we can comprehend. But if this was me, and I would have committed to following the will of the Father, it would have been so easy for me at this point. The song says he could have called 10,000 angels. It would have been so easy if I'm committed. But Jesus was surrendered. He had he was giving everything into the hands of the Father. He had nothing. He had no will of his own anymore. The next chapter says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those are the words of a surrendered man. Further on in that same chapter, Luke 23. And it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having done this, he gave up the ghost. Again, total surrender. It's easy to be committed to Jesus, being committed to God and his ways when things are going good. But when things are difficult in our spiritual life, when things get rough, that's when unconditional surrender is the only way. It has to be that way. On March 10th, 1974, Lieutenant I, I can't say his name. It's Japanese. Hiru Unada. He just passed away in January of 2014. But this is March 10th, 1974. Lieutenant Hiro Unada was a Japanese soldier. He was the last Japanese soldier to surrender in World War II. I see some of your eyebrows going up. This is 1974, 30 years after what we think of World War II as ending. He had been placed on an island, uh, the island of Lubang in the Philippines, December 25th, 1944, with the command to carry on even if ja- even if Japan surrenders. Those were his orders. There were five Japanese soldiers left on this island when they evacuated in 1944. One soldier gave himself up in 1950. Another soldier was killed by local police in 1954. Another one was killed in 1972, but Hiru Onada continued his war alone until 1974. The efforts to convince him to surrender were futile. He ignored messages from loudspeakers announcing Japan's surrender. Leaflets were dropped into the jungle, begging him to surrender so he could return to Japan, but he refused to believe this. Over the years, he lived off the land, raiding fields and gardens of local citizens. He killed at least 30 of the nationals during the 29 years that he stayed on the island. Almost half a million dollars was spent trying to locate him, and thirteen thousand men were used to try to locate him. Finally, on March tenth, nineteen seventy-four, I guess World War II officially ended, when he surrendered by direct command from his previous senior officer, um, read him the exact words of the Japanese surrender and That was what he needed to surrender. He came out and handed over his rusty sword and he said nothing good happened to him in the 29 years that he was in the jungle. He was 22 years old when he was given the command to stay there and he was a prematurely aged 52-year-old man when he gave up. When you surrender something, it's implying that you at one point had something and you are now giving that up. you had something you're giving it up in the case of in this case of Japan in World War II they had aggression they had terror, they had military power and in surrendering they gave that up. Surrender means more than merely giving something up, though it also means yielding to the wishes of someone else. Surrender means relinquishing all self-interest. And for the Christian, surrender must affect every area of your life. Surrender comes about I'm not sure where I found this, but it's profound. Surrender comes about by consent of the mind. It's reinforced by our will. It's settled in our heart. And then it's displayed through everyday living. And I can't think of a better definition of how surrender can come about. It comes about by consent of our mind. It's reinforced by our will. It's settled in our heart. And then it's displayed through our everyday living. Romans 5, verse 10 says, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We look at Hiru Unata and we shake our heads and say, that's crazy. Why would he go on doing this? But I'm convinced there are Christians today who are fighting a lonely battle against God, unwilling. It's a small, something small, maybe, that we might think is small. Fighting a lonely battle against God, unwilling to give up that one little part of something, whatever it is. And just because people can't see it doesn't make it any more ridiculous than Hiru Ada. Hanging on, unwilling to let go. When the Roman army was at its peak and it would conquer new territory, the conquering general was a Roman hero. And he would get what is called a Roman triumph. And what that is, is a parade or a victory parade for the victorious army and especially for the Roman general. And what needed to happen, there were three things that needed to happen for this Roman triumph, for you to be worthy of a triumph. The general must have had complete victory on foreign soil. He must have killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers. And he must have gained new territory for the empire. Those three things need to have happened in order for a Roman triumph to happen. And what it was is the general, the commanding general, the conquering hero, would ride down the main street in Rome in a gold chariot, With people lining the street, waiting for him to come. Many, many people. The whole city would turn out to see this. The procession was led by priests swinging censers filled with incense. And they went well ahead of the general. And this incense would go through the whole city. So that if you weren't there, you knew what was happening. You could smell it. You knew what was coming. Next came the general in his gold chariot, Directly behind him were the officers of the defeated army, and they were chained to that chariot. Stumbling along, chained to that chariot, headed for their death. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. were two things that would stand out to people in this Roman triumph. The first one was the smell or the aroma of the incense. And the second thing was the sight of the defeated officers or the defeated army chained to that chariot. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ to them that are saved and to them that perish. To one we are a savor of death unto death, to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity... But as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. We fit into this picture in two ways. That's what, that's what Paul is referencing here, is a Roman triumph. And we fit into this in two ways. It says, Now thanks be to God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. The savor, or the keeping in mind the scent, or the aroma of that incense. That's what we are. We are the aroma of Christ in every place. That's what a Christian is. The next verse says, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. Keeping in mind this triumph. There's people along the side of the street cheering this. They are the ones that are saved. There's people coming behind that are going to perish. And that's, everybody can smell the same scent, the same aroma. But it means totally different things to different people. To the ones beside, it means life, it means victory, it means triumph. To the ones coming behind, it means I'm going to die real shortly. And that's what he's saying. He's saying that's what a Christian is. We are that sent to the world around us, to everybody, to, to other believers, were that we're a scent of victory and and triumph in Christ. But to those that aren't saved, we are a reminder of death what's coming that's the one way we fit into the, the picture the other way is as a Christian who is surrendered to Christ we are chained to his chariot those conquered people had no option they were chained, they had no turning back they had no will left of their own they were chained to that chariot and that's what we are Paul realized that in Ephesians 4, he, he spoke of himself as a prisoner of Christ, chained to Christ's chariot. No will of his own. <coughs> Excuse me. As a prisoner for Christ, being chained to his chariot, we go where the chariot goes. There's a song, and some of you may know it, The words go like this. The generals of Rome, when waging a war in triumph, would capture the foe. And chaining them fast would drag them behind the general's chariot and go. Triumphantly through the city of Rome, as incense was burned in the street, a battle was won, celebration was made, as prisoners were led in defeat. I stumbled along in shackles of sin, no freedom or happiness mine. The good that I wanted so badly to do, the power I never could find, But actions I hated, abhorred, and despised, I found myself doing with ease. The body of death bore me down with its weight. I struggled in vain to be freed. Now thanks be to God, to triumph he's turned, my bondage to service so free. I gladly accept on my shoulders to bear his yoke truly fitted for me. Sinner, why don't you join in procession with us? Accept the constraints of Christ's love. Now catch this line. This captures the whole purpose of this. The chains are not bondage, just proof that he's near to lead us to heaven above. We think of being chained to something as bondage, but I love that line. It says, The chains are not bondage, but proof that he's near to lead us to heaven above. Then the chorus says, I was waging a war against Jesus my Lord, chained to the chariot of sin. He triumphed at last, I've surrendered my will, now I'm chained to the chariot with him. Surrender is consent of our mind reinforced by our will settled in our heart and then displayed through everyday living. We can choose which chariot we're chained to. It will be one or the other. We're either chained to the chariot of sin or we can allow Christ to have victory in our life and surrender our will to him and be chained to his chariot and realize that that, those chains aren't bondage. Another thing I try to avoid as a speaker, which I'm going to do tonight, is halfway through the message, I don't like when a speaker says, now I have five points. I prefer the five points to be halfway over by this point, but I do have five points. Five characteristics of a surrendered life. The first one is in an unlikely passage. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 7. Five characteristics of a surrendered life. Characteristic number one is a surrendered life will bring everlasting and abundant life, which logically does not make sense. When we surrender, we are admitting defeat and we're giving up. But for the Christian, that's the only way to victory. That's the only way to peace. And that's the only way to everlasting and abundant life. 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3 through 8. Syria had been besieging Samaria. We begin reading at verse 3. And there were four leper, leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we will die also. Now therefore come and let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were coming to the uttermost parts of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses and the camp was even the camp as it was and fled for their life. And when these lepers... Came unto the uttermost parts of the camp. They went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it. And came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. I'll stop reading there. In verse four, we find these lepers with three choices, and I like their logic. You follow their logic. They're saying there's a f- we're under siege here. We can go into the city and we're going to die if we do that. If they don't kill us, we'll die of starvation. We can stay here outside the city and we'll for sure die. So either either one of those, we're going to die. Option number three is we can go into the camp of the Syrians out there and we might die, they might feed us. What do we have to lose? We have nothing to lose. So they did. They surrendered themselves to the camp of the Syrians and when they did that, Notice what happens. And it's not a result of them surrendering, but they surrendered and they had abundant life. More abundance than they had ever dreamed of. And you have a choice as well. The same choices come to each one of us. The Christian life is hard. It is not easy being a Christian. And maybe retreat is an attractive option for you. Maybe it was easier in your life before you became a Christian. But if you retreat back to that way of life, there's no other option but death, eternal death. Maybe you're happy with where you are right now as a Christian. You're happy right where you are because we know the more we learn the more we're responsible for so let's just stay where we are and that'll be fine the problem with that is that is death as well being content where we are means death as well Revelation 3.16 says so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot I will spew thee out of my mouth the third choice you have is to fully surrender everything in your life to Christ. Fully surrender means that there is no area, nothing, that you're keeping for yourself. Fully surrendered means that you are chaining yourself to the chariot of Christ. I stumbled upon a quote that is just loaded. There's good stuff in here. It says, If you want to be a conqueror, you must first be conquered. And I say to you that you are only experiencing as much victory in Jesus as Jesus is experiencing in you. You are only experiencing as much victory in Jesus as he is experiencing in you. If there's an area of repeated failure in your life, it's a good sign that that there is an area of your life that you have not fully surrendered to Christ. If there's an area of repeated failure in your life, that's a good sign that there's an area that you have not fully surrendered to Christ. It's pretty simple. If we want to be conquerors, we must first be conquered. You will not experience the abundant life God offers or accomplish his purpose he has planned for you without living a life of surrender that's what it boils down to there is no abundant life or a fulfilling life of purpose in Christ if we cannot surrender to him the second characteristic of a surrendered life is our surrender must be unconditional in the verses I read at the beginning Jesus was unconditionally surrendered to the will of his father How else could he have prayed not my will but thine be done? That is the prayer of unconditional surrender. Because when you think about it, conditional surrender is not surrender at all. At six o'clock in the evening, June 5th, 1945, World War II in Europe came to an end. And that is when Germany formally accepted the terms of surrender and signed the surrender documents. There were 15 articles laying out in detail what was expected of Germany as a country. And it was made very clear what was to happen. Article 14 caught my eye. Second last article, it says, in the event of failure on the part of the German authorities or people, Promptly and completely to fulfill their obligations hereby or hereafter imposed, the Allied representatives will take whatever action may be deemed by them to be appropriate under the circumstances. That doesn't leave any wiggle room at all. I'm going to read it again. It says, in the event of the failure on the part of German authorities or people, promptly and completely to fulfill their obligations hereby or hereafter imposed. So in other words, whatever we decide now or in the future, If you don't comply promptly and completely, the allied representatives will take whatever action may be deemed by them to be appropriate under the circumstances. So in other words, if you don't do what we say now or later, we can do what we want. There's no wiggle room. In a sense, that is what our surrender to Christ is like. There is no bargaining in unconditional surrender. We cannot come to Christ and say, I will surrender my life, except I really want to keep this. And we would never consciously say that. We would never come to Christ and say, I'm giving my life to you except for this. We wouldn't consciously do that. But are there things that we just hang on to? The terms of unconditional surrender for Germany left them without any self-interest at all. The surrendered Christian is dead to self, and we're dead to sin. What we get good at is this. We become Christians who try for conditional surrender by looking good, sounding right, doing many of the right things but hanging on to that one little thing and by doing that we are settling for far less far less in your life than the holy standard that we have unconditionally said we have unconditionally committed to it's called making provision for the flesh doing what we want to do a Christian is one who has yielded everything unconditionally and is chained to Christ's chariot. Characteristic number three, our surrender must be on God's terms. Jesus will only accept the life that comes to him on his terms, unconditionally surrendered. When you surrender and die to self, it will leave you empty, but not for long, because Christ is waiting there to fill you, to fill you with is love, joy, peace, goodness, purpose. Andrew Murray says this, the surrendered life has given up forever any thought of self in God's presence. It meets its fellow man as one who is nothing and seeks nothing for itself, who is a servant of God and for his sake is servant of all. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Characteristic of a surrendered life is to come to Christ on his terms, on God's terms. Matthew 19, verse 16 through 22. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit, that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said, Which? And Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go, and sell what thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This young man was coming to Jesus on his own terms, willing to give up almost everything in his life. But Jesus said you're lacking one thing. You're doing good, but you're lacking one thing if you want to be perfect, if you want to live a surrendered life. He said you need to sell what you have, give up everything. And the young man it says he went away sorrowful. He was unwilling to meet the terms. In surrender, we can have no compartmentalized areas of control. And I listed a few that came to my mind, areas of control that I either see in myself or I I think we struggle with. We maybe have trouble giving up our time. Relationships. Future, entertainment, and you can fill in more blanks. But these are different compartments of our life that we have trouble giving up all of them. A surrendered person has no rights. J. Hudson Taylor said this, the real secret of an unsatisfied life lies too often in an unsurrendered will. I had to think about that for a while, but I think it's true. The real secret of an unsatisfied life lies too often in an unsurrendered will. Many Christians fear and flee and seek deliverance from all that would humble them. At times they may pray for humility, but in their heart of hearts they pray even more to be kept from the things that would bring them to that place. Let me read that again. Many Christians fear and flee and seek deliverance from all that would humble them. At times they may pray for humility, but in their heart of hearts they pray even more to be kept from the things that would bring them to that place. Fourth characteristic is that our surrender will not be forced Surrender in normal warfare is a forced surrender. When you are backed in a corner and you have nothing else, the defeated army will surrender. When it comes to Christ, our surrender is not forced. There's an invitation for it, but it's not forced. And I think there's a reason for that. If you were an employer and had a job for someone to do. You had two people to do a job. The one you had to make do the job. You had to force them to do the job. The other one did the job because they enjoyed it, because they wanted to do it for you. Which one is going to do a better job? Which one is going to bring you more glory as an employer? It's the one who does it of their own. The one who enjoys it and wants to do it for you. And that's a crude illustration, but that's how it is. When we've surrendered to Christ, we we're living for him, we want to bring him the honor, we want to bring him the glory, and we are going to live for him. He's not going to force us to do it. We're not his machines, we're not his robots. Joshua twenty four fifteen is a familiar verse. It says, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose. It's a choice. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He made a choice. He wasn't forced. He chose. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Tonight you are given a choice of whose chariot you're going to be chained to. Psalm 119, verse 30 says, I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. Verse 173, Let thine hand help me, for I have chosen thy precepts. Think of Saul on the Damascus road. The light came down from heaven. He wasn't forced to respond in a positive way. But he did. He chose to. And lastly, a surrendered life is a living sacrifice. As a surrendered Christian, we need to serve. Romans 12 lays out a lot of things that need to happen in the life that is a living sacrifice. Wholly given over to God and his will. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy. Acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. If you look at Romans 12, I encourage you to do that sometime. Look at Romans 12, verses 10 through 21, and look there. There is a long list of about 24 things, and maybe more. I saw 24 things that are things that will happen in your life if you're living as a living sacrifice, as a surrendered living sacrifice. I'd like to close with this quote from Nate Herbst. What percent does God control of your life? What percent does God control of your life? And then he has a list. He says of your entertainment, of your free time, of your image, of your life plans, what percent does God control of those things? And then he follows it up with another question. If you say God controls every area of those as others look on is there proof to the contrary? I think other people can look at us sometimes a little more accurately than we see ourselves. Are you living a surrendered life tonight? I am not going to have an invitation tonight but I encourage you as you go from here ponder your heart not anybody else's but your own and if there is any area that you have not you're not willing to give up that invitation is there for you to be willing to give it up because an un, a conditional surrender is not surrender at all. It's not giving ourselves up to him. And that's the only way God can use us, is if we are holy, given 100% to him. And it may be humiliating. It may be difficult. But he's asking for all of us, for all of our hearts, Let's stand for a closing prayer.